morning, everyone. Welcome today to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let us begin, as we usually do, by entering into prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his amazing sacrifice for us on the cross. We thank you for his resurrection. And we thank you, Father, that you have brought him to your right side to be our advocate and intercessor. We ask this morning, Father, that you would have the Holy Spirit guide and direct our worship together. We pray also, Father, for the needs of the church, especially the persecuted church around the world. We pray for our country. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. And there goes the Pied Piper again. Does a great job with the kids. Good morning again, everybody. Welcome again here to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today, first Sunday of every month. That's what we do. And also the first Sunday of every month, it means we're featuring a new missionary organization. And this month, it's Grace Bible Church Pakistan. Many of you know um, Fazil and Carrie John. And uh, they're doing unbelievable work, them and all their team. One of the things I do want to mention is that they do have an orphanage. It's called the 316 Home. And they, uh, they, what they do is they turn to the churches in the United States for support for their orphans. So you can literally adopt an orphan. Um, we've done this before, and there's two new young children. Um, one was born in February of 2008. That's Mihawk on the left. I guess she, she would be, what, anybody want to do the math? I think she's 12, right? And then Karis, and she was born in July of 2012, and so she's a little younger. Um, they've been with the three, yes, eight, 316 Children's Home for four years. Both children have lost a parent. Mihawk lost her mother, Karis, her father. It's nearly impossible for the families to survive if they don't have both a mother and a father in this culture with the Christian um, folks isolated. Very difficult to find good work. So um, they have been given to the 316 home with hopes for a better tomorrow and to encourage, educate, and give them their hand in marriage. To, I love this. This has got to be carried, John. Give their hand in marriage to the most dashing and spirit-filled prince. Nice. <laughs> so please pray with us uh, together with them. And uh, if you'd like to support those, uh, those young children, um, you can uh, let us know. Or uh, they, you can go on the website, too, and uh, basically... Um, it's basically something every month you just give a certain amount of money to support them. So we've done that in the past, so just let me know if you're interested in that, and I'll hook you up with Carrie. All right, the next thing about missionary organizations is we've got the most amazing letter. I just got handed this to me this morning. It's from um, Kevin and Kim. They're missionaries with uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship, which is one of the um, organizations that we support. Well, and anyway, to make a long story short, um, they, basically, they are at a school, an international school now, and I believe uh, Kim is the principal, and they're both teaching there. And uh, what, to make a long story short, um, they were given a very big donation to be able to travel to the United States, okay, from, from Indonesia. Well, apparently it was more than they needed. And what they decided to do was to give us money. Now, this is really amazing. I've got to say, it's very unusual, and this is understandable, that missionaries would turn around and give money back to the church. 
In fact, this may be the first time that, I don't know, you may remember, but this may be the first time. Not only that, but we, we give them money, but what they gave us back is a big multiple of what we gave them last time. So I just, you know, that's pretty amazing. So please keep them in prayer. They have children. They have a bunch of children, three kids, Kyler, Caleb, and Kara. Um, they must like the letter K. I guess it's because they're Kevin and Kim, so they keep it all in the family. Anyway, this was such a, a heartwarming thing, but really edifying. I wanted to share that with everybody this morning. I mean, amazing, actually. Um, this Thursday through Sunday, I'll be traveling. Um, so Steve Pomeroy will be teaching next Sunday. I know you guys are always looking forward to when he teaches. I am too. Um, this Thursday, we won't have a Bible study, though. All right, let me say that again. This Thursday, we will not have a Bible study. I say that because just about every time we cancel Thursday night Bible study, not that often, somebody will show up and wonder, what's going on? Where's everybody? So um, no Bible study this Thursday, okay? Oh, wait, in case I forget, there's no Bible study this Thursday. I'm going to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Um, some sad news this morning. Um, as many of you know, we have a, a small congregation in Tucson, Arizona, that considers to be a part of our, our, our congregation, even though they're half, almost fully across the country. Well, Richard and Kelly Nolan have been the ones who have really run that for many years now. And I found out from Kelly um, yesterday that Richard's dad passed away on Friday. So we would just ask you to keep them in prayer, Richard and Kelly Nolan, and the, and the family, the mom and the rest of the family, sisters. Okay, uh, if anyone needs a Bible, uh, we have them in the back. Please raise your hand, because we're, we're going to now go into the teaching part of today's service. The Bible, need a hand? Hey, who's gonna, who do we have this morning? Usually have Jack. Oh, Letha, all right. Letha's all purpose. She does technology, she does Bible, she's a great cook. Um, sounds like I'm trying to hook you up, but I'm not, you know. It's just... <laughs> but she is all those things. All right, on the front too. Now the other thing is, is, if we give you a Bible, then you know we have a microphone too that people to speak. And if I need somebody to speak, I'm gonna we're gonna give you the microphone too. So we're gonna remember who we passed the. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I gotta share one more thing. Apparently last week I said something about toys. I don't really remember it. I came in this morning and I looked, and behind it, there's two chairs and a little table, and there were two toys there. And I had forgotten I'd said that, and I was thinking to myself, somebody must think I've been really boring lately, because they said, you know, here are some toys alive and up, and here's one of them, nice clown there, all right, so if I guess if I, if I feel that things are getting too heavy today, I can just pick this fellow up and shake him up. Actually, ladies, I'm going to have to just keep this guy in mind, okay, you'll see why we, in the lesson this morning. The title of today's message comes from 1 Corinthians 14, and it's properly and in an orderly manner. Properly and in an orderly manner. This is the last thing that Paul writes in these three chapters we've been looking at in some detail on the subject of spiritual gifts, their abuse, and the difference between prophecy and tongues in that time. Okay. I say that time, remember, because those two gifts were temporary. In the first generation, when the Bible hadn't been completed and the people needed to be taught the new revelation that was coming to the church, we had prophets that did that. We also saw the gift of tongues, which was primarily for the unbelieving Jews. Remember that? Jews require a sign. In any event, the last thing he talks about is when you have these gifts operating in the, in the worship service, and we've seen that we have gifts operating in the worship service today, that it should always be done properly. The manner in which 
you teach, the manner in which we sing, properly and in an orderly manner. Orderly manner, we're going to see there's something profound there. But as a practical matter, it's just so everybody can anticipate and participate in everything. So they kind of know what's going to happen and they're not confused or feeling um, overwhelmed or so forth. So properly and in an orderly manner. That's how worship services should be conducted. Please turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. Now, our portion today begins in, really in verse 34, because last week we ended up in 33. So you might say, why are you going back? Well, I'm going to tell you why in just a minute, but let's read the passage together. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment, the other prophets. But if revelation is made to another who is seated, not speaking, but seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That just means that if the prophet is speaking falsely, then the other prophets are the ones who correct that. Okay. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He has to remind them, by the way, that they're not the only church in the world. He has to do that a couple of times. He says, listen, there's a lot of churches out there, and they're all getting this teaching, so don't you think you can step out and be something on your own? Okay. Verse 34. This is really where our portion starts today. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, Here's the husband at home, by the way. You can look up. All right, a little levity, ladies, right? If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I, Paul, write to you By the way, we now have them encapsulated in the New Testament epistles. The things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, that this is the Lord's commandment that I'm writing, Paul says, he's not recognized, not recognized as a prophet at all. Therefore, my brethren, this is capstone now, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done, here it is, properly, all things, properly, in an orderly manner. Today we finish our study of spiritual gifts. It's been a study that started in chapter 12 and now is ending at the end of chapter 14. So that's what we're going to do. Now I mentioned already, we started in verse 29, even though our passage today is really verses 34 to 40. Now why am I doing that? Well, I think most of us know by now that in really the order to understand any passage of the Bible, you can't just cut it out and try to put it, put it all by itself and just try to just study it. You have to always check out the neighborhood, as we say. Look at the context. That's how you really understand what we have in a particular passage. Now, you may ask yourself, well, why here? Why now? Why are you saying that? I think maybe some of the women know already, because verses 34 and 35 
um, appear to be saying something, but it's critical that we look at the context, the neighborhood, as we studied those verses this morning, verses 34 to 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves Just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. I got to tell you, I wouldn't have had this letter to read this morning if one of the women didn't speak in church. All right. So we got to understand, again, context, right? Not not only here in in the text, but also in the times and what we already know about the gifts that we've seen already. I'll bring that to mind this morning. But it's critical that we look at the neighborhood. These two verses I just read, verses 34 and 35, about the women keeping silent and they subject themselves and they, if they desire to learn, ask their own husbands and it's improper for a woman to speak in church. These two verses are so controversial, as you might imagine. Here's what I learned about how controversial they really are. Many commentators write them off. They say, you know what, that wasn't even in the original text. They say that. They say it was inserted later, later on when the church had already formed and the leaders wanted to, you know, put women in their place. Some scribe threw that in there. It wasn't in the original text. I don't know how they know that because literally every manuscript, every one that we have of the New Testament includes these two verses. So that ought to tell you something. Um, So in other words, it's probably not intellectually honest to make that statement. In fact, it's really a cop-out. It's a cop-out. People say, I don't want to teach this, or I don't understand it, or how does it relate? It's a lot easier just to say, you know what? Eh, it wasn't really in the original text, so we can ignore it. That's wrong. That's wrong. Every manuscript has these two verses. So you can't toss them aside, say, well, that was a later edition that Paul wrote, that Paul didn't write. Well, I have to say that in today's culture... Trust me, it's really tempting to want to discard these two verses. Maybe you can't read that too well, but it's it's the church, they're singing hymns on a Sunday morning, and then a few ladies in the back have a big banner that says, we want to sing hers, rather than hymns. Uh, You get, okay. Yeah, yeah. We live in a day and age where there are, of course, many, many uh, pressures, most people, most women especially, um, really think that women, you know, are a little better than men. Right, ladies? By the way, you probably are. I mean, I don't want to get into that. Um, in a lot of respects. Okay. But we can't take the culture and insert it into the church, right? Especially because we know the things of the world want to, will want to come in and sort of destroy what we have in the church. So we can't do that. We can't say that because there's a certain principles of liberation that women have in the, in the workplace or in the, in the um, culture at large that we then have to reinterpret scriptures in light of the culture. We just can't do that. All right? But that's the temptation. All right? Sure would make my job a lot easier, as a matter of fact. But again, we have to look at verses 34 and 35 in their context. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we look at what came right before and what came right after. That's why I started in verse 29 today. So you could see what came before as well as what comes after. And if you look at what came before, take a look at that. In other words, in verses 29 to 33, look at that. It talks about prophets, right? Let two or three prophets speak, 
and importantly, let the others pass judgment. This is the context for the, what Paul says about the women. All right, he's saying I am teaching on prophets now, prophets that speak, and importantly, prophets that interpret and judge. That's the context of verses thirty-four and thirty-five. Can you see how um, wrong it really is to just take thirty-four and thirty-five and teach a message on it? A lot of pastors do that, you know. They take certain scriptures. Our portion today is thirty-four to thirty-five, and we're just going to look at that. That's not a good way of interpreting. You have to say, well, where is this in the big picture of what Paul's teaching? And that's where it is. It has to do with prophecies and those who are interpreting them or judging them. All right? Judging them meaning that's not correct. All right? So we need to see that and we need to keep that in mind as we study this passage. Not only that, but we also have to look at the bigger picture. Even bigger than the section that it occurs in. But really the whole chapter 14 and really the entire unit. 12, 13, and 14. That's all context. You can't throw that out when you just want to look at a particular passage. Especially this one. Especially one where commentators want to say, you know what, that doesn't fit. Toss it. Well, I'm going to tell you, it does fit. But it fits in the context. You can't remove it from that. Well, we've seen many times, but I'll remind everybody one more time, that the subject of the three chapters, 12 through 14, is spiritual gifts. We have to ground everything that's in these three chapters according to how it relates to the main subject, which is spiritual gifts. And also, importantly, how the Corinthians were abusing those gifts. Okay, That's part of the context, too. This wasn't just a congregation that was functioning correctly, all using their gifts to build one another up. This was a congregation that was really abusing the gifts and trying to say this one's better than that one and so forth. People trying to hog the limelight and so forth. So, so then Paul really had to rein all of that in and again set things to be in a proper and orderly manner. And that's what we have to see these two verses in light of. Now his critique of the gifts, remember, centered around two of them. Right? We've seen this many times by now. Tongues and prophecy. Those were the two, by the way, uh, as we've seen, those are both um, temporary gifts no longer functioning in the church today. Now, the 14th chapter that our passage is embedded into is really dedicated to convincing the Corinthians that the gift of prophecy was superior to the gift of tongues when the saints assembled inside the church. The place of tongues, remember we say, was outside because it was a sign for unbeliever Jews, remember that? Not inside. Paul says, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 in a tongue in the church. So he's saying, look, in the church, in the worship service, prophecy was much superior to tongues because prophecy built everybody up. Everybody could understand it was in their language. Okay? Tongues didn't do that unless it was an interpreter. And even then, it was very limited information. All right, so again, verses 34 and 35 must be interpreted accordingly. Within the big umbrella of spiritual gifts, within chapter 14 that is talking about tongues, not being, you know, prophecy being superior to tongues, and he goes into the fact that now here's how I want you to function with respect to those two gifts. And then in this immediate section, he's talking about how, do you, how are they to properly use the gift of prophecy and properly use the gift of judging evaluating what the prophets say. Right? That's all the context. Now, because of that, verses 34 and 35 
are not, they're not a blanket statement about women's behavior generally. See, again, that's how a lot of people read that. Part of the reason they read it, I think, that way is because of our culture. Right? If see, people had read that 100 years ago, they probably wouldn't have been as, you know, oh, wait a minute, what's wrong with these two passages? Because it was a time in which they understood and lived, I hate to say it, but lived more according to the lines of authority that the Lord set up. Right? Namely, in, in the family, you know, you have the husband is the head of the wife. Okay, keep that in mind because that's going to be the key to understanding what he's saying in verses 34 to 35. But in a culture that throws that out, that even says you don't really even need a husband and a wife, you know, in a family, right? You can have one or the other or two men or two women. I mean, let's just be real about what's going on in our culture today. And that the women can be very independent of the man. All right? I, I was, uh, we have a, have a couple of uh, pastors in uh, West Africa that I provide teaching to. One of them emailed me this week to say, I've got a huge problem on my hands. I don't know what to do about it. And here's what the big problem was. Well, first of all, they're all having sex without being married. Okay. The second one was the women were taking over the leadership of the households. Okay. So it's not just America. You know, this also happens in other parts of the world. So in that setting, of course, that's going to create lots of, lots of mayhem when you bring it into the worship service, as you can well imagine, when you bring it into the church. Already seen that earlier on when, remember, the women... Women were to be dressed accordingly and properly um, so that they wouldn't bring shame upon their husbands. That was chapter 11. Okay. Not a blanket statement. Put it in the context. Again, verses 34 to 35. In the context of spiritual gifts, in the context of looking at prophecy in tongues as it was being abused in that congregation, in the context of Paul teaching how they are to operate as prophets, and how the ones interpreting or judging operate in that context. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. By the way, that's a reference to Sarah and Abraham. We won't get into that. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, is it, is it really true that a woman cannot learn anything in the worship service when the word's being preached? Ladies, is that a true statement? Of course not. So again, this can't be a blanket statement. In fact, he's already said earlier on that the reason for having order one at a time is so everybody, women and men, can learn. So this is not a blanket statement. This has something to do with the context. Now again, these verses, therefore, are speaking about women in the context of the exercise of the gifts of prophecy and tongues. Let me say that again. These two verses about women keeping silent are speaking about women in a context. The context is using the gifts of prophecy and tongues. Now, here we are in 2020. And these gifts aren't operating, right? Prophecy, remember prophecy will be, will be pushed away when the completed canon of Scripture is, is given, and then tongues signed for the unbeliever. They will simply cease when their purpose has been fulfilled. The Jewish unbelievers, which would see these signs, and as we saw in the reference to the Old Testament, they would ignore them. And then the, the Jewish nation would be destroyed a few years later. That was the purpose of tongues, was to warn them that the judgment was coming. 
Well, once the judgment came, in fact, even before that, tongues ceased. The point is that neither of these gifts is in operation today. That ought to give us some caution about trying to take these verses and bring them into now. All right? Because we don't have this going on. We don't have prophets speaking and others judging. Okay? By the way, we saw this last week. What we have today is the pastor, teacher preaching and the whole congregation judging. In other words, the Bereans, remember, look, whatever the pastor says, check it out against the scriptures. We no longer need other prophets to interpret what's being said because we have the perfect resource for judging, for making sure that what's said behind the pulpit or anywhere else, on television, on radio, wherever people are purporting to preach the word, that it actually is the word. So we don't have these gifts today. So we have to really be cautious in how we apply them to our our church today. Now, we've seen the big picture of chapters 12 to 14. We've looked at chapter 14. Now let's drill down to the immediate context behind verses 34 and 35. Well, they appear in this last section, chapter 4, verses 26 to 40. And in this whole section, Paul is giving practical instructions. He's been teaching on the subject. Now he's saying, now let's apply this to your church, to the Corinthian church in that time, in the first century. He's giving practical instructions about how the Corinthians are to employ and not employ the spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy. Remember, he's as much saying about what shouldn't happen as what should. He's telling the prophets you speak one at a time. If there's somebody who has a revelation who's, not, who's seated, not speaking at the time, the one who has been speaking is to stop. Let them come up and, pray, and, pray and give their prophecy. Right? So two or three, right? Not mayhem. And he had said something similar about tongues before that. All right. And he's talking about two gifts, tongues and prophecy. Now, again, we started with verse 29. So you can see that verses 34 and 35, again, are found in this section that gives instructions to the prophets. So let's just now picture, now when we see this, let's think the prophets. The prophets of that time were given portions of the new revelation. And others, other prophets were to judge that to make sure it was legit. Okay? And in that context, that's the women that keep silent. And they, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands. All right, so here's the thing. Other prophets pass judgment on what is said by the prophets who speak that week. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Okay. Now, now, let's bring men and women into this picture. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Prophets speaking, prophets judging. Now let's bring the women and the men in. How does that relate? Okay, look at, first though, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. 1 Corinthians 11. The reason is, is because Paul earlier in this chapter has made a provision for women to prophesy. So I want you to think about that. See, a lot of people say, well, there's a glaring contradiction. Chapter 11, he's saying when women prophesy. Chapter 14, women are to keep silent. Well, that, either, that is either a contradiction or there's another explanation, right? Well, there's another explanation. Okay, but let's read the passage. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 
But I want you to understand. Here's what he wanted them to understand then and in this last section. Christ is the head of every man. Okay? This is order. This is the line of authority that God established for people, for his people. Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, by the way. Not every woman. Man can't be going bossing around somebody else's wife, right? A woman. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. In other words, don't get too shook up, ladies, because even Christ has a head, which is God the Father. Even though God the Son and God the Father are equal in essence, in terms of the authority structure of the deity, there's a, there is the Father and the Son. Wow. So if that's the case, I can't be sitting around here complaining. A woman can't be complaining that, you know what, you've been placed in a certain place in the authority structure so that there be order and proper behavior when Christ is subject to the Father. Okay. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Disgraces Christ. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, there it is. He's saying women are going to pray, women are going to prophesy, but they should have a head, their head covered. We studied that in the, in the times, it just meant be, having proper attire and an indication that you are being subject to Christ and to the head, the husband. For he is, she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if, a wo- for, for if a woman doesn't cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. Hmm. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now here's what, here's what I want you to see. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. He's a reflection of God's glory. Why? Because he's the leader. Why? Because God has given him the calling. Okay? Then it goes on, though. Okay, For the woman is the glory of the man. The glory of man. That's a great privilege, by the way. If you're the glory of somebody, that's really cool. Now, now the women today say, yeah, but it's the man. He doesn't know anything. You, know, you look at the commercials today. Do you ever notice the commercials today that in most cases, the men are like dunces? You know, they're like clueless, and the woman has to come on the scene, and, you know, yeah. Well, you, if you think that's just, you know, funny... Think about it again, because again, that's the culture trying to pull apart the authority structure that God has given. It's that simple. Man is the image and likeness of God. The woman is the glory of man. For man does not, here's how to figure it out. Man does not originate from woman. In other words, in the garden, he was created directly. But the woman from the man, the rib came out and the woman was created. For indeed, now this is going to rub a lot of ladies today the wrong way. Indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake, the helper. All right? Put the right, when you put the right order that God has established, good things happen in whatever that unit is, whether it's the family, whether it's the nation, whether it's the church. When, when we put the order that God has established and we adopt that, we submit to that, good things happen in the family, in the church, in the nation. All right. Now, so here's the deal, though. In verse 5 right here, chapter 11, where it says women are going to prophesy. I don't want to get too technical, but it, the, the verb here is feminine. It's a verb that can be either feminine or masculine. 
prophesy. Okay? In verse 4, okay, the prophesying or praying of the man, guess what the verb gender is? Masculine. So in other words, it's distinguishing between women prophesying and men prophesying by the verbs. Now, I don't want to get too technical and all of that, but that's how it works here. Okay. However, in chapter 14, there is no indication at all that women were prophesying. Women were not prophesying in this setting where you had people prophesying and people judging. All right? It doesn't say that women were prophesying. There's no indication that they are. So back in chapter 14, okay, we, have, we do not have both men and women mentioned. Okay? In terms of prophesying, we just have men. As you might imagine, all the verbs, nouns and pronouns are masculine when it talks about prophesying in chapter 14. I'll also throw this out. There's a passage in Luke chapter 2 about a woman who was in the temple prophesying. And I think it's Anna. And uh, there's a separate word for who she was, a prophetess. That's a Greek word that's different. And that's not found in chapter 14 either. So there's really no evidence that women are in view doing the prophesying in our chapter 14. Or for that matter, judging. Okay. And you know something? Verses 34 and 35 start to make perfect sense in a situation, now think about it, where you have men prophesying followed by others judging what they say. I'll give you a hint. Men, husbands prophesying and then having somebody else judging what they said. Hmm. Now, who would like to be that judge? And, but who can't be that judge? Back in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay, one other thing here. The women in view in verses 34 and 35 are married women. Now, how do I know that? It's really simple. Look at verse 35. If these women desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands. Now, let me ask you something. If a woman has a husband, what does that make her? Married and a wife. So this isn't even talking about all women. It's talking about wives in here. So let me read, let me reread verse 34 and 35. The wives are to keep silent in the churches. For they, the wives with husbands present, by the way, are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they, wives, desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a wife to speak in church. So so there's the other thing to kind of narrow this down. Husband and wife are together in the church. There's there's prophesying going on. There's some that are speaking, some that are interpreting or judging. What's the order that God has established? The man is the head of a woman. Now, let's use our imagination for a moment. We have the worship service. It's time for the prophets to speak and others to judge. 
Okay, let's imagine that a husband is one of those prophets. He's getting up to speak. He's speaking at the worship service. He stops. And now it's time for his words to be scrutinized, to be judged. I mean, picture this. What if the wife starts speaking at that moment? And starts saying, you know, Bill, what you just said, the second thing you said is just wrong. Right? What has just happened? The man is the head of a woman, and yet the woman is what? Trying to be the authority over the man. Can you see that? And that's not going to work. And not only that, when she's finding fault with her husband, guess what happens? The door is now wide open for other women to do the same thing. Can you see how that would create a real problem? We're really dividing, really tipping, tipping over the authority that God has established between husband and wife. Can you see that? All right. Can you see how that would be embarrassing? Can you see how the other members of the congregation will be squirming in their seats, no longer really paying attention to anything about the worship service, but rather watching this husband and wife go at it? That's not the design that God has for the worship service. Now keep in mind, again, this is going on in front of the entire congregation. It would be as if I was reading chapter 14, verse 34, and my wife Roberta stand up and says, you know what, that was taken out of the whole Bible. I know it. I read a commentary that said it. How would you be feeling at that moment? Would you be feeling edified? Feeling that there's order in the church at that point? Of course not. Of course not. In other words, in that situation, the context, it's shameful for a wife to speak. It challenged the authority of her husband. And as we saw earlier in chapter 11, the women were were already rejecting the authority of their husbands. In other words, when Paul's dealing with problems and how there was abuse of the spiritual gifts, he wasn't only talking about what was going on, who, who had a gift, but also with the women who were also abusing things and making things to be, you know, confusing and Okay, so, so that's what Paul's dealing with, right? Whenever a woman in the church contradicts or challenges the authority of her husband, that's going to cause tension and division in the assembly. Why? It's really simple. Because whether we like it or not, God has established the authority, the head, okay? And whether we like it or not, when that is, when that is um, challenged, okay, that's gonna, that is going to cause Disruption. We're going to squirm in our seats. I mentioned this before. But you know, parents are supposed to be the head of the children. I will never forget this. When I was 12 years old or something around that time, we were sitting at the table at dinner. Now, we, us children had always been, trust me, an Irish Catholic dad. He was tough. All right? he, didn't take, he didn't put up with anything. We were subject to him. All right? And that's just, that was like unchallenged. It was unthinkable. That anything would be different. Now we were just 12 years old. We didn't know it. Well, one day we come in to dinner, and my older brother is really, really angry. I don't know. We didn't know, but he, he's challenging my father at the dinner table. I'll tell you what. I wanted to vomit. That's how upset I was with this order being twisted over. That's just not natural. That just can't happen. How are we going to run this house? I was just a kid, and I saw that. Okay? It's always it's true the same thing. I don't want to talk about politics, but when we have people challenging the authority of people in authority, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Congress or the President of the United States, that's very disturbing to the order of the nation. It pulls us apart. Same principle. 
Constitution, same thing. I'm not saying these are all on the same level as Christ is the head of a man, but it's the same principle. Okay? We want, whether we like, whether we want to think about it or not, we like order, especially for everybody else. We wouldn't mind if we were the one rebelling, feeling like, you know, heroic or whatever people feel like when they want to start a revolution or whatever. But everybody else is not that comfortable with that kind of behavior. Same thing in the church, if not more so. So, here's another thing you have to factor into this section. It wasn't just the women that Paul told to keep silent. He told men to do the same thing. Again, context. During the worship service, when men were speaking in tongues and prophesying, it was to be one at a time. And one was to defer to the other. And the one who deferred was to keep silent. So he, he imposed this same regulation, if it, as it were, on men in that context, not just on women. Look at chapter 14, verses 27 to 30. 14, verses 27 to 30. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. If there's no interpreter, if there's nobody to explain the tongue, which nobody could understand, and nobody's there to interpret what's supposed to happen, he must keep silent. Ladies, you can speak in church. I'm trying to tell you that. He must keep silent in the church. So this was not, he was not just picking on the ladies. He had the same kind of regulation for the men in their order, in their role. Okay, prophets to speak one at a time, tongues, speakers one at a time, the others are to keep silent. All right, let's look, let's look again in verse 29, the prophets now. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment, the other prophets. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, what happens to the first one? Must keep silent. Can you see this wasn't just about the ladies? It was also about the men. A little different. Because they, they were able to speak in turn, but they too had to have, be obedient to order and proper behavior. And that meant being silent at times. Okay. Here's the bottom line. If a man prophesied, it should, it has to be another man who judged. Has to be. Why? Because of the order of things. Because that would be upset, and then all of a sudden the whole worship service would be turned upside down because somebody was creating this conflict that was uh, not according to the order of things. Okay. By the way, ladies, it doesn't mean men are better than you. Okay. I, I use this illustration at times. When we're driving and we hit an intersection, guess who, the, who or what the authority is? It's the, it's the traffic light. Isn't that true? It's the authority. In other words, it, tr- it turns red and we stop. Now, the traffic light isn't better than us, right? But it has been established as the authority so that the order at the intersections, if there's nothing there, if there's no traffic light, if there's no stop sign, what's going to happen? Mayhem, crashes, coming up. It's like, have you ever, if you've ever seen uh, Rome, Italy, at, at, like, at, like, at the end of the day when everybody's driving? It's, I don't, I'm not picking on the Italians, but it's true. You see them coming from all directions, and there's traffic jams, and starting. Well, you know what? There's no authority there. You put a policeman somewhere, and now all of a sudden things clean up, hopefully, although in this day and age, who knows? 
But thank God we're still obeying the authority of the traffic light. Now, ladies, if, you, if your husband can obey an authority called the traffic light, can't you obey the authority called your husband? After all, your husband's like got more going on than the traffic light. Can you imagine like going to dinner with a traffic light in the other seat? You know, wouldn't be much of a conversation. All right, I think you get the point. All right. So if a man prophesied, this is just for order now. This doesn't mean anybody's better. It should be another man who judged, not a woman. Verse 34. We're going to go all the way to verse 40 now. If the, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. They are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If these women, the wives, desire to learn anything, by the way, about what they might have questioned. In other words, there's a prophecy, and then there's, an, then there's somebody who's judging it. But the woman would have kind of liked to go in there and ask questions about it, right? But that would have been upsetting the order of things. No, you can't do that. If you've got those kind of questions, wait till you get home and ask your husband. Okay. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now he's done with that issue and he's moving on to the men, primarily. Was it from you? Remember, the men were causing most of the trouble. They were the ones that were dividing along all these lines, right? He's turning back to them and he says, Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? In other words, were you the ones who sent the apostles everywhere? Absolutely not, right? Or has it come to you only? Are you the only church that has ever heard any of Paul's teaching? Of course not. Now, if anyone thinks... Key word. He's a prophet of spiritual. A lot of them thought, now picture this, why would you need somebody judging the prophets? Well, the answer is because not all of them were prophets. They thought they were. If anyone thinks he is a prophet of spiritual, let him recognize, here's the authority, that the things which I write, the apostle writes to you, are the Lord's commandment. If anyone does not recognize this, if anyone is not subjecting themselves to what Paul is writing to them, he's not recognized as a prophet. So now we understand that the prophets who are judging are judging according to whatever Paul has revealed to that church. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak in tongues. I hope you see the difference between the two. They're saying, listen, open the floodgates for prophecy. Put a lid on tongues. One more time, we see that's prophecy is a superior gift. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Okay, as we finish, we have two more rebukes, right, to the saints at Corinth. Two more. We've already seen that he's asking questions again, right, in verse 36. We've seen this already many times. When Paul is asking questions, it's an indirect way of rebuking. He's always asking a question where the obvious answer is no. And yet it's a question that, that they have been... In other words, he says, you know, should you be stealing? Right? And of course the answer is no. Why would he even ask the question? Because they were stealing. You see it? Same thing here. They probably they acted as if they were the fount of all wisdom. It all came from Corinth. I, mean, I don't know how they could think that, but they were. Or has it come to you only? Ask questions, that's rebuke. So, what he's telling them in verse 34 is, you better have a little more humility than you have. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. 
Other churches have also received the Lord's teachings, and they're submitting to them. Their worship services are already following the commands and the order that Paul issues here. So be a little humble. Don't think you're the be-all and end-all. Don't think you're the exception. A lot of people want to think they're the exception. Rules are for everybody else. Okay. Verse 37. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I, Paul, write to you, now we have them all. Right? We have all the things that Paul wrote to all the churches now. Right? From Romans to 2 Timothy. It's all here. Okay. If, again, a man might think he's a prophet, if he thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things that Paul writes to the Corinthians of the Lord's commandment. What he's just said is not just him, it's the Lord that has set these orders in place. We would do well to remember that. We would do well, men, to remember the fact that Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of us. Whatever we do has to be in, in line with our authority, Christ. Okay? Women would do well to be reminded that the head of a wife is a man, is a husband. Okay? That's the commandment of the Lord. I always have, whenever I teach something that's controversial, I like to remind people, I didn't write the New Testament. Okay? That's the commandment of the Lord. I'm here to communicate it. Right? Okay. If anyone does not recognize this, what? Now, Paul's writings are from the Lord. He is not recognized as a prophet. He's given instructions to the ones who are going to judge. He's saying, if there's somebody getting up there, and it's clear that they are uh, challenging the things that Paul wrote, that's not a prophet. Okay. All things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. All things. Oops. Oh, yeah. This is a point I already made. I want to make it again. It says that anybody who's a prophet understands that their gift is a manifestation of the Spirit. Okay, that means that the Spirit is to govern. And in, and in particular, a real prophet will recognize the authority of the apostle that the Lord sent. By the way, Paul is the apostle that the Lord sent to the Gentiles. All right, to the body of Christ, ultimately, Jew and Gentile. So in our day and age, we need to recognize the authority over the church and how it operates in Paul's writings. In Paul's writings. Now, I know that sounds restrictive, but that's, that's the way the Lord set it up. He sent Paul to the Gentiles. Paul had the new revelations for the church. Paul was the one who has issued the order of things. Paul is the one that would write to Timothy and tell him how he is to be the next generation of, of, of leaders. Okay? So we ought to recognize that authority too. In other words, if a pastor, a teacher, whoever is, is preaching and it contradicts something that's in the Bible, especially something that's in Paul's letters, don't listen. Right? Don't listen to that. Okay. If he doesn't recognize the authority of the apostle, he is not to be recognized. He is not to be recognized as a prophet. Verse 39, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Again, every aspect, all things of the worship service must be done properly. Nothing that's shameful, nothing that's disrespectful, and in an orderly manner. In other words, you know what this just means? The worship service should be a reflection of the character of the Lord. 
He's the head of the church. We should be, we should be realizing this when we gather together. Christ is the head. We ought to recognize his authority. And our worship should be a, a reflection of his character. His character. His righteousness. His love. His peace. And so forth. So I hope we can start to see at the end here. That you know what? What we've read this morning. What we've read about women and men in the worship service. There's something a lot more profound here. Than simply the conduct and proper behavior of men and women during the worship service. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, right? Well, how is peace established? How is peace established in the home? How is peace established in the school or in the workplace or in the church or in the nation? It's real simple. Peace is the fruit of order. It's submission to authority. You see, when everybody's lining up with the authority, there's peace in the valley or wherever you are, in the church, in the school, in the country. Imagine. Imagine if everybody in the United States was in submission to the Constitution of the United States. Imagine if everybody in the United States was in submission to the, to the local leaders, the city councils and the mayors and the governors, totally in submission. Imagine the peace that would be in that location. Okay. That's why it's so important to do that in the church. Peace is the fruit of order and submission to authority. Why? Because God is a God of order and authority. You know, this whole conflict that we're in now, men versus women, murderers, uh, with conflict within our own bodies as Christians, we got the spirit and we got the flesh, all those conflicts, death, sin itself, it all started with a rebellion. It all started when Satan and the fallen angels rebelled against the authority of God. It created chaos in the whole universe. Why? Because first of all, it created chaos in the heavens. You had the angels that were still loyal to the Lord. You had the angels that were, had rebelled with Satan. Now you have conflict. No more peace in the valley or in the heavens. Then man is created. Who comes on the scene? Satan comes on the scene. What does he want to do? Create division. Have the have the humans rebel against the authority of God. Have the woman rebel against the authority of the man. It's all there in plain view. Now these Satan and the fallen angels, okay, they had a place and they rebelled against it. They are false gods. What they only want to do is create confusion and rebellion in the human race. They have their own counterfeit rule and authority. And they are always at work, please pay attention to this, attempting to destroy the order and authority set up by God for people. Everything you're seeing today in the matter of sex and gender uh, is, is doing this. It's desiring to destroy the authority set up by God for the family. So it all, that's what it's doing. They incite people to rebel against legitimate authority, rebel against God, re- rebel against the word of God. Rebel against the sovereignty of the nation. Rebel against the governing authorities, the president, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the police. Rebel women against your husbands. Rebel children against your parents. Rebel at church against the elders of the church. Bosses in the workplace. Chain of command in the military. Teachers in the classroom. Listen. There will not, you know, we sing a Christmas, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners, right? There will not be peace on earth until all the people of the world 
and all the angels as well, are once again in complete submission to proper authority. And ultimately that means to God and his word. We will not have peace on earth until that happens. And folks, that's not going to happen until Christ comes back. Christ came. If you want to think about it this way, we're going to see this in the Lord's Supper in a minute. He came ultimately to restore the rightful authority of his Father over all creation. He did it at the cross for man, right? That we'd be reconciled to God. At the cross, he defeated the enemies of God. And we're going to see that. It's going to all play out when he comes back. And one day we're going to see this everywhere. We're going to see God the Father in authority over all creation. By the way, including Christ, as we saw already. When this is complete, it will be breathtaking in its majesty. By the way, we will see a glimpse of it in chapter 15. Chapter 15, we're going to study it two, start to study in two weeks. It is one of the most awesome chapters in the whole Bible. So I hope you'll come on and hear what, what the Word of God says in chapter 15. It'll blow your mind. Yeah, sure, you can read ahead too, of course. I encourage that. All right, let's close in prayer and begin to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Father... We thank you that ultimately when we line up with your will according to authority and order, there's peace in the home, in the city, in the nation, in the family. We ask, Father, for the Holy Spirit to continue to remind us about that, chastise us about that, get us back in line. We know that not only is it going to create peace in our environment, our schools, the workplaces, but also ultimately it is lining up and pointing to and honoring the authority of your Father, the living God. And as we today worship you through the Lord's Supper, we would ask that we would keep that in mind and look at your son's sacrifice in that regard as well. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, this time I would invite the ushers to come forward, pass out the communion elements so we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Well, we gathered again today to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Whenever we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we bring into remembrance the Lord's death. That's what we do. This month we bring into remembrance the Lord's obedience to his Father in going to the cross and dying. We, we usually think of our Lord's death on the cross in terms of what he did for us there. We would do well to give more attention to what Christ did with, to his, with his father, for his father, when he died. Okay. Because Christ went to the cross in submission to his father's authority. And when he was in the garden, he told them, listen, if I wanted to, I could get legions of angels right now, and they would wipe out the whole Roman army. But he didn't. Why didn't he do it? Ultimately, because he was going to honor the authority of his father, what his father's wishes were, his father's will, that, that the people he loved but he couldn't um, have, have into his family because they were in rebellion and, and he had to do something about it first. And his, and his will for doing that was to have his son become human and die. And so Jesus said, I will do that, Father. I submit to your authority. Jesus told his father, I won't do my own will. I'll do yours. And what that meant for him was the agonies that he suffered on the way to the cross and then his unimaginable suffering on the cross as this perfect 
God, man, bore our sins in his body. Can you imagine what that was like? We think about the physical suffering because we can relate to that. That it's a clue to what was really going on when he was bearing our sins. He did it freely. He did it for the sake of his father. His father's righteousness had been offended, challenged by sin. And all the while, he still loved the human race. So his son's death on the cross demonstrated and vindicated the righteousness, the holiness of God, his father. So Romans tells us this in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's first and foremost what happened at the cross. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed. God had an agenda. God had a purpose. He was to display publicly his son on the cross as a propitiation in his own blood. And it would come through faith. And then he goes on. This is the key. This, the death of Christ being displayed publicly as the propitiation, a sacrifice for all the sins in the world because it demonstrated the righteousness of his Father. In the forbearance of God, he had passed over the sins previously committed Can you imagine his righteousness, what it meant for him to do that? But he knew that Christ would come to the cross and die for those sins. That was the demonstration of God's righteousness now. So that here's the key. This was God's will. This was what could only be accomplished through the death of Christ, that he could remain just. His righteousness would be on display. And yet the justifier of that sinner who simply has faith in his son. It ultimately pointed to the glory of God that in his essence he's both righteous and love and those two were fused back together again by the cross. That's what it meant to God. Christ died on the cross as an obedient son and now he turns to us and he says, I want you to submit to my authority as head of the church. And over, above all else, he's given us one commandment. He said, this is my commandment. That you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. We are to love one another in that way, as he's loved us in that way. We are to submit to one another. We are to be concerned about one another's needs, not just our own. We are to do nothing from selfishness or arrogance, but be humble in our minds regarding one another as more important. And ourselves. We are not to merely look after our own interests. We are to also look after the interests of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let the mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He was God. He did not think it was robbery to be equal with God. He, he, he deserved that, but he steady put that aside, sacrificed, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a slave, made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Why, how can we not humble ourselves before others than the Lord when Christ humbled himself? To the point of being obedient to death on a cross. For that reason, 
because the son was obedient to the father, even in death. God has now highly exalted him. Thank God he has. Our advocate is at the right hand of the Father. Every blessing that we receive is on the basis of the death and resurrection and ascension and session of Jesus Christ. God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, here's the order reestablished in the universe. At the, in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, because that's to the glory of God the Father. What a sublime unity, order, authority. There it is. It's all right there. Every tongue will confess. Every tongue, every tongue, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven, the angels, those who are on earth, human beings, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and it's to the glory of his God and God and Father, our God and Father too. All right. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he writes, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we are proclaiming his death. All that it means to the whole human race and to God the Father and to the fallen angels and to all the angels. That's what's going on, you know. Angels are watching over us right now. So we can, we can be here, well, we're not a huge congregation, and, but we're proclaiming the death of Christ to the angels right now. That is something. One day we're going to judge angels, the Bible says. Why? Because we're in Christ now. We're, we're, we are, whoever Christ is, we are. We're in him. We are the fullness of him in this world. Never forget that. Now we proclaim his death. When he comes back, we're going to celebrate him as the king of kings. And he's going to set up his kingdom. Okay, we will have already have been raptured seven years earlier. But he will set up his kingdom. It'll, he'll rule for a thousand years. He'll defeat all his enemies. Satan will be thrown in the lake of fire. And all of the unbelievers who are still in rebellion against him will be judged and put in the lake of fire with him. And then we'll have peace on earth and peace in the heavens. All right, let's close in prayer from the Lord's Supper. Father, we want to thank you for all that you've revealed in your word about your order, about your son, about who you are. We thank you, Father, that you sent your son in the form of human flesh and that he died on the cross for our sins and that he was risen from the dead on the third day and that whoever simply believes in your son, simply believes, will never perish. Never go to the lake of fire, but will have eternal life.
We thank you for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of reminders. Okay, one more time. No Bible study this Thursday. All right. Uh, by the way, our giving policy is uh, not to pass around a, a basket, okay? Not to tithe, not to take pledges, okay? But rather to, again, be obedient to what's written in the Word in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That is to be freely given out of, what's, out, of, out of your heart, a full heart for what the Lord has done and how you want to see others blessed and you want to see others hear the gospel, others to be built up by the word. That should be your motivation. And it says that we are not, we are to let the person give freely so that he's, he or she is a cheerful giver. In other words, doing it just out of their heart. That's the way God did it. He gave freely, right? The free gift of his son. We are to do the same thing. Okay, so we will never put pressure on anybody to give in any way. We don't, that's why we don't pass the basket around, because let's face it, there's pressure with that, whether we realize it or not. There's pressure with other people, we, uh, would I put anything in, and all of that. Or gee, you know, so we don't do any of that, okay? It's just freely you have received, freely you give. There is an offering box in the back. You can also mail it to our church address. We have envelopes for that. And in this day and age with technology, you can actually go on our website and use PayPal. So we're trying to cover all the bases. All right. One more time. Gospel of Jesus Christ. For you who are believers, it's a reminder of what we're preaching. For those of you who are not believers, it is the most important message you'll ever hear. That we're born sinners. Everybody, everybody here today, we're no better than you. We're all born sinners. Nothing good dwells in us. Then God said, I will fix that by my son Jesus Christ dying for all those sins and then being buried. By the way, the sins were buried with him. And then he was risen from the dead, raised from the dead by the Father on the third day, a miracle to prove who he is, God in the flesh. And all God says is, I want you to do, not even to do, I want you to be the way a child is when a child hears good news. Guess what? We're going to Disney, right? Guess what? God has sent his son to reconcile us to him. That's good news. And we are to be the people who believe. That's all he says. You hear the good news, believe it. And you'll never perish. You'll have eternal life. You'll be in the family. So believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All right, if you have any questions today about anything that we taught or anything that's in the Bible... I will be, I invite you to speak with me. I'll be standing there in front for a few minutes. And uh, as you leave, I also would ask that you drive safely. And for that, I have another toy. Be careful. Stop at those red lights now. Okay. That's, that's Lee. He's the one who, I came this morning, I looked at, I already told you that. Like, what the heck are these toys doing over here? But I love them now. I'll probably use them every week. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you once again, and we ask that now as we leave that you would help us to respect and obey the order that you have established. We uh, pray that all of us will do that. We all have authorities over us. We pray, Father, that we would look at the cross and understand that he went there under your authority. And then when he turns the whole universe with all the enemies destroyed back to you, and he, he says all will be in submission to the Father. So if Christ can do all that, we can certainly allow the Spirit to change our hearts 
when it comes to the legitimate authorities in life. We ask that he would continue that work and that we would uh, allow him to do that. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that, you're dismissed. Enjoy this beautiful weather. Beautiful, right?